imposter syndrome. Uh, when competent, successful people doubt that they're capable, uh, as capable as everyone believes. Uh, they suspect that underneath the veneer of achievement at work or study, they're actually frauds and that one day they're going to be found out. Now, mostly the fear is unfounded. Uh, normally, all of us, we don't advertise our weaknesses, our lack of confidence, and so we assume that everybody else is competent and confident, except for us. But when it comes to Christianity, imposter syndrome, that fear is a real one. Uh, because imposters are everywhere. And eventually, imposters will be found out. Now, the danger is far greater than being embarrassed or fired from your work because Jesus sees everything. Jesus is coming to judge. So imposters had better watch out. It's true today, it was true in Jesus' day as well. Uh, we pick up, a sto up the story in, uh, in chapter 11, as uh, Merrick and Bill have sort of uh, introduced for us. And Jesus finally makes it to Jerusalem and he's not happy with what he sees. The leaders of Israel, they're supposed to be shepherding the sheep. They're supposed to be guiding and protecting, setting an example in their commitment to God's word and obeying it. But instead of obedience and justice, instead of a passion to love and follow God, religion has been twisted into a hard-hearted legalism. And the temple is the focus of it all. It's the centre, the sacrifices, the washings, they're meant to provide access to God. They're meant to just be a means to the end, but they've become the end in itself. And the God that they point to has been forgotten, largely. Israel is rotten to the core. Israel is like one of those disappointing peaches that you buy that look beautiful on the outside, but when you open them, they're just dry. There's no juice. But it wasn't a recent thing either in Jesus' time. It had been going on for hundreds of years. 700 years earlier, Micah despaired at how godless Israel was. There was not a good person to be found. It was like a fig tree with no fruit. Listen to these verses from chapter 7. What misery is mine, says Micah. I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave, and here's the metaphor, the godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. The ruler demands gifts, the judge accepts bribes, the powerful dictate what they desire, they all conspire together. Do you notice the focus on the leaders? But Micah was waiting expectantly for God's king to return. Verse 4. The day of your watchman has come, the day the Lord visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. Micah's saying 700 years earlier, imposters had better watch out because God's coming. And then there's Zechariah. 500 uh, BC, 200 years later. And Zechariah brings God's warning specifically against these godless leaders against the shepherds who don't shepherd, imposters. Chapter 10, verse 2. The idols speak deceit, diviners see visions that lie, 
They tell dreams that people are fal- that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds and I'll punish the leaders for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah. And around that prophecy, Zechariah goes on to describe one that God will send to replace these bad shepherds. And when he comes to Jerusalem... He will be a king, a leader, a shepherd like no other. He will be a humble and gentle king. A king who would bring peace and joy and unity. Uh, It says chapter 10, but it's actually chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. This king who would replace the, the, the imposter leaders, shepherds, would bring victory through gentleness. Uh, he would, would replace warfare with peace. He would replace righteous leadership. Uh, he would, re- sorry, replace hypocrisy and impostors with a righteous leadership. But those are just promises. Uh, and the prophets go quiet. And the centuries pass. And the people wait expectantly. But nothing changes. And impostors flourish. And the sheep suffer. And 500 years go by. until Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He arrives at the temple. God's king arrives in God's house. The son of David arrives in the city of David and he's about to set things right. He's on the hunt for imposters, for false shepherds. He's God's very own independent commission against corruption. And now's the time to let everyone know who he is. Up till now, he's kept things a secret. Don't tell anyone what's happened to you, he says. But now the time for secrecy is gone. It's time to shout it from the rooftops. And so he gets organised, verse 1. They arrive on the city outskirts. Jesus sends two disciples into Bethany to fetch, very specifically, a donkey. Just like Zechariah 9 predicts, a king will enter Jerusalem on a donkey, a humble king of peace. And then the disciples and the fellow travellers give him a reception fit for a king. It's like a standing ovation or a Mexican wave or it's like rolling out the red carpet. They lay their cloaks on the road. They cut down branches and put them on the road. And then they shout, verse 9, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It's a quote from Psalm 118. I think probably that the people were singing the whole psalm. It was a psalm, a group of psalms that they sang for Passover. But Mark focuses on this particular bit because of its themes of salvation and kingship. Hosanna means save us, Lord. And so they're praising Jesus because he's come to save. And this unlikely king 
heads down the hill and up the other side from the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, rolling to and fro on the back of a waddling donkey. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen someone sitting on a donkey as the donkey moves along. It's not a very uh, polished-looking thing. You, you can't look graceful as you, as you do it, and you're about head height or lower. You're not up there for everyone to notice. But that's the way Jesus enters Jerusalem. But rather than heading for the palace for his victory speech, he heads in a different direction because he's an unlikely king. He heads, verse 11, straight to the temple because that's the true centre of Jerusalem. That's where God meets his people. Today he's only got time for a quick inspection. It's nearly evening, but he has a look around. He sees enough. He'll come back and deal with what's rotten. Verse 12, following morning, he heads back into Jerusalem from Bethany. But before he gets there, we get to part one of this strange episode involving the fig tree. He sees a fig tree in the distance. He notices the leaves, big, green and healthy. But when he gets up close, there's no fruit. Now that's exactly what you'd expect. You wouldn't expect any different. Mark goes to the trouble of telling us it's not the season for figs. The tree is all show but no go. What's the use of a tree, apart from shade, that has leaves but no fruit? And because there's no fruit, Jesus curses the tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then he continues walking. Now we may have all sorts of questions. What did the poor tree do wrong? Someone in Bible study this, this week was very concerned about what happened to the donkey and what happened to the fig tree? <laughs> we may wonder, hardly sounds fair to blame the tree, does it? Like it's not its fault, it's not even the season for figs. We may also wonder why Jesus skipped breakfast. After all, it's the most important meal of the day. But you may have other questions. But let's keep moving because Mark doesn't answer those. Mark keeps moving. All will become clear. Verse 15, Jesus heads straight for the temple. Uh, He entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now he launches straight into it. He knows what he's going to find because he was there the day before. And he's filled with anger because people have turned the temple into a marketplace. You see, they'd flip things upside down. Instead of sacrifices helping people draw near to God, they were actually getting in the way. They were stopping what was actually the most important thing, which was praying to God and having a relationship with him. And so because they'd flipped everything upside down, Jesus flips everything upside down, literally. Tables, cages, piles of coins, chairs, and he removes them from the temple. Now, the chief priests hadn't actually allowed the tables in the temple building itself. They they were in the court of the Gentiles, which was a big courtyard around the outside. It it was uh, fenced off. Uh, But it was as close to the temple as Gentiles, as non-Jews, could actually come. The Gentiles couldn't go into the temple, but they could stay in the courtyard outside. And what Jesus saw there... Uh, was that it was so cluttered, it was so noisy, there were so many people, 
that the Gentiles couldn't actually do any praying. And so he says in verse 17, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. You see, rather than introducing the nations to the one true God, Israel was putting obstacles in its way. You can see Jesus' order of priorities over in the next chapter, chapter 12. A scribe asks him, verse 28, what the most important commandment is. And Jesus says, well, there's two. Love God with everything, love your neighbour as yourself. The scribe says, I agree. And he says, verse 33 of chapter 12, to love God and to love your neighbour is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And I can imagine Jesus saying, a smile on his face, and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because that's Jesus' priority. Loving God, loving your neighbour, it's more important than the offerings and the sacrifices. But the temple had turned that upside down. For them, the the offerings and the sacrifices were more important than loving God and loving people. They were actually causing people not to be able to love God. And so the temple or its leaders earn God's judge, uh, Jesus' judgment. So I guess that's the question for us. How do we do the same? How do we cut off access for people to God's grace What things get in the way of people knowing God? What is it about our attitudes? What is it about the way we treat people? About our structures, our processes, the physical building itself? What blind spots do we have in our Christian culture that non-Christians find difficult to cross? Is our building a welcoming building? Are we as welcoming as we think we are? Paul says we're to be all things to all people so that by any means possible we might save some. We need to remove any other offence except the gospel from non, before non-Christians so that the only thing non-Christians can be offended by is the gospel message but not us or anything else that is attached to us. It's more than just things that we do though. More importantly, do we have the same love of Jesus for the outsider? You see, if we truly love the outsider, we don't have to agree with everything they do or their lifestyle or their choices, but if we genuinely love them, two things will happen. Firstly, that will actually motivate us to look hard at the obstacles, at making things easier for them to come to know Jesus. But secondly, if we truly love them, then the people themselves will be more willing to cross those small blockages, those things that stand in the way, because they know we genuinely care for them. Let's not put obstacles in the way of people. Jesus got angry at that. Well, back to Jesus. The king's returned. He's judged the leaders. He's found them guilty. They're imposters and false shepherds. But verse 19, once again the day is gone. Jesus travels back to Bethany. Next morning, verse 20, they come to the fig tree again. 
Now, Mark loves to write this way. Uh, the technical term uh, is their interpolations, their little insertions. Uh, fig tree, temple, fig tree. He tells uh, part of the story, he introduces the fig tree, then he adds the second story, and then he finishes the first story. Uh, the non-technical term for it is the sandwich technique. You've got a bit of bread, then you've got the filling, then you've got the bit of bread. Uh, and the idea is that the two stories, the fig tree and the temple, they comment on each other. They help our understanding of both stories. There is some common theme that Mark wants us to think about that connects to both. And what Mark does is he gives us little literary hints. He, he drops in these common descriptions or common ideas that help to join the two stories together. They're like toothpicks that join your club sandwich together. Now in this case, notice how Mark emphasises how Jesus sees the fig tree and then he comes closer and then he curses it. And I think we see that same pattern when Jesus sees the temple on the first day, then he goes back and then he comes again and then he judges the temple. I think that same pattern uh, is Mark's way of saying, now hold these two up against each other and look at them. Now when we do that, it becomes easier to work out what Jesus is doing with a fig tree. It's a parable. It's an acted parable to do with a temple. Or, more accurately, Israel's leaders who are in the temple. Uh, Jesus is saying that Israel is that fig tree. Just like Micah chapter 7, it's a tree with no fruit. It's all show but no go. Do you remember? Jesus is hungry for figs. He wants to see godliness. Just like God craving godly men and women, but there are none. There's just leaves. There's just religious performance. There's just the temple and the sacrifices and the offerings, but there's no love for God. There's no love for neighbour. And a tree without fruit is useless. And so he pronounces judgment on it. And a temple without godliness and love is useless. And so he begins to deliver judgment on the temple. He clears out the rubbish. And so we come back to the fig tree. Verse 20. And Jesus' curse from the previous day has had its effect. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look. That fig tree you cursed yesterday, it's withered. It's completely useless. It's a picture of Israel's religion. Centred on the temple with no fruit, it's dead. Now the destruction of the fig tree, it's a warning. Now I suppose it's, it's an acted parable, but it's also a prophecy and it's also a miracle. There you go. It's a prophecy, a miracle and a parable all at once. It's a warning for the destruction of not just a tree, but the temple itself. A destruction that would happen 30-odd years later in AD 70 at the hands of the Romans. But it's not all bad news. Jesus doesn't just leave Israel empty and withered. He's come to replace the temple. He's replacing the building with the new temple of his body. Because, you see, it's in Jesus that you meet God. And he's come to replace the priests. 
He's one man who stands between God and humanity. And he's come to replace the sacrifices. One perfect human life in place of temporary, expiring, repeated day after day animal sacrifices. And the withered fig tree is a sign of all of that, of the judgement and the destruction of the old way, brought to an end by the words of Jesus, by the action of Jesus. Peter remembers and he says, look. And then from verse 22, Peter, uh, Jesus replies with, let's be honest, some difficult sayings, uh, some sayings about prayer and faith and forgiveness. But as I read them out, I want you to look carefully for any repeated words or ideas from from the context that this little paragraph sits in and, and see if that helps us. So reading from verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it'll be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, at the very least, if we just separate it from its context, Jesus is saying big things about prayer, isn't he? About praying big, about praying with faith. But I think if we remember the context in which these words are given, they'll help with the difficult bits. So this whole section is about Jesus coming to judge the temple system. And what's the problem with it? It's stopping the Gentiles from praying. It's it's excluding people. The temple system, uh, with its constant, complicated system of forgiving sins. Now contrast that with this paragraph. The temple's been replaced and in its place is Jesus. And who does he bring together? He brings a new people of God, Jew and Gentile, who will gather instead in Jesus and they will pray with faith, unhindered by blockages of bad shepherds. And he says, if anyone prays, and I wonder if he's not saying there, even the Gentiles who you've excluded, if anyone prays, pray big things, believing and their Father in heaven will hear and answer. That's us. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Don't go looking for problems. Just recognise how amazing that is. That those of us from Australia or whatever other country we represent here, and let's be honest, there's many, each of us can come to our Father and pray and he will hear and answer. Unlike what was happening in the temple. And verse 25 Uh, It describes this new way of dealing with sin. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Make sure you don't just overlook that. Just hear that as those disciples heard it. Disciples who had to daily, weekly, monthly, yearly offer sacrifices for sin and keep doing it But now, all they had to do was not hold anything against their brother, ask God, sins are forgiven. That's extraordinary. 
Jesus is so much better than the temple he'd come to replace. Now something else that I think it's difficult that this context helps us a little, wi- a little bit with. Uh, I'm not sure I've got the, the full answer about it, but when he talks about this mountain being thrown into the sea. Remember the context. Which mountain is he talking about? They're on their way back into Jerusalem from Bethany. Uh, and the road uh, from what you can see there is we're on the, the uh, Mount of Olives, looking down into the Kidron Valley and up the other side, and that big dome you can see is the Muslim mosque, that, but it used to be the temple was there. And so Jesus was maybe standing in that spot, saying, anyone who says to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it will. So here's my suggestion, that he's actually talking about Mount Zion. He's talking about the temple. Uh, The fig tree's been cursed. The temple as well is bound for destruction. And so if you pray that this mountain would be thrown into the sea, that's the sort of prayer that God is going to answer. It's a mistake to take this verse as an unconditional promise to pray for any big mountain to be thrown into the sea as a metaphor for any big request and God will automatically do it. Now, I don't want to completely remove what this verse is saying. I'm not saying God can't do incredible miracles. I've seen some pretty incredible miracles, things that I've prayed for. God may literally move a mountain. He may do, uh, give some big answer to prayer. But I think it's a mistake to, to take this verse as a promise that God, a blanket promise that God will do whatever you like. I think there is something about the, the, the geographical context that's here. So, uh, what can we learn from these verses? Where's the relevance for us? Jesus, our King, has come. He's judged the wicked, self-seeking uh, shepherds of Israel. He set things right in his death. He's replaced the temple and its way of approaching God. That is wonderful news. Access to God is free and available to everyone. All nations, their prayers can be heard and answered. All nations, when they ask for forgiveness, it's available with just a prayer. We need to make sure we don't restrict access to God as Jesus has provided it. And there is a notice there in verse 25, there's this warning against imposters as well. We began thinking about the idea of imposters. Well, verse 25 says, don't request forgiveness from God if you're not willing to forgive your brother or sister. God knows your heart. Is there something in your heart that you need to address? Is there an obstacle in the way? Is there a broken relationship with someone that you need to restore? Do it now. When you fix up that relationship, get on your knees, pray for forgiveness, pray with faith, pray with confidence that God can do anything. Jesus invites us to do that because our Father is big and good and his King Jesus has arrived and he set everything right.
Hosanna in the highest. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for these these words of Jesus, these actions of Jesus, uh, that point to his priorities, his character. Thank you that uh, we have the amazing privilege to pray to you through him, that we have the amazing privilege to ask for forgiveness through him. Praise Jesus. Amen.